if, if I was a young dentist right now, I would definitely look into digital dentistry quite seriously because I think that's where, that's where dentistry is, is definitely going. Welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. I'm David Keir, and one of the things that got me into dentistry that fascinated me the most early on was digital dentistry. I was lucky enough to work with a clinician who had a CEREC machine back before everyone else had a CEREC machine. It inspired me and it made me think maybe dentistry could be something I could follow. And today's chat, um, we dive into the depths of this kind of thing, digital dentistry with Dr. Chi Chang. We talk about plenty of different things in the digital dentistry sphere, but one of the things that I think is most important, he gives a bunch of tips on how you can get into this as an associate or if you can't afford to buy the big programs or the big scanners and all the rest of it. And there are some programs he suggests, there's some other ways you can get STL files, etc. that can get the ball rolling for you. As always, we get to know Chi with a bit about his background, his early influences, the things he learnt before he became a prosthodontist and then the tips and advice he has for graduates and dental students. And speaking of advice for dental students and graduates, this episode we have the Prime Head Start segment with Dr. Philip Palmer. You've heard him before, of course, on this podcast and he's got a lot to share. Today, he's going to share with you the three ways to improve your career as a dental graduate. And as we slowly emerge from the COVID-19 shutdown, don't forget to find your CPD, whether it's online or in person now on cpdjunkie.com.au. But first, enjoy the chat with Dr. Chi Chang. I've been a dental protection member since graduation and I'm so thankful I can partner with them and have their support with Dental Head Start. They've proven their value to me, but what really matters to me is they offer much more than just indemnity. Members receive a range of benefits including Dental Protection's online e-learning platform called Prism. They produce regular webinars and blogs on information you need to know as an early stage dentist and they have unparalleled support from experienced dental legal consultants including Annalyn Weston who has been on the podcast. Their support for dentists has been shown even more in this challenging time and they're generous enough to offer current members three months free membership when renewing from July 1. I think that really sums up that they're here walking with us. And excitingly, Dental Protection has also launched their new podcast called Risk Bites, a short podcast hosted by Dr. Annalene Weston and the team of Dental Legal Consultants about specific topics to keep you up to date on all things medico-legal. Thank you, Dental Protection, for supporting dental students and graduates, and thank you for supporting the Dental Head Start podcast. Dr. Chi Chang, welcome to the Dental Head Start podcast. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. I want to ask you a question. It's a little bit of a leading one. If you weren't a dentist, what would you do? Oh, that's a tough one. It, it seems to change on a, a month-to-month basis. And uh, as I get older and older, it changes too. If you'd asked me this question you know, 20 years ago, I would have said something like a DJ or something <laughs> like that. Um, I, re- I, I did do some research. So that's what I was expecting. Go on. What would you say now? What would you say now? Now, you know what? I'd, I'd, I'd love to be retired. That's the honest, honest truth. Because <laughs> I had a taste of it with the, with the COVID lockdown. I was sort of, you know, I'd shut down for about two, um, two months. And, uh, and I sort of, I remember waking up one morning thinking, geez, this is what being retired is like. This is pretty good. You know, I didn't have to think about dentistry for a while. Um, you know, I, I had very little stress. I, I'm, I'm very lucky and privileged with my practice and, of course, with all the government subsidies. And JobKeeper, that I, I had very little um, financial stress, so it was quite it was quite nice. That certainly opened our eyes up, didn't it? I, I 
personally, I'm, I'm not looking to retire just yet. I've only just started. <laughs> but, um, but at the same time, it definitely made me realize that we can slow down a little bit and enjoy, smell the roses, so to speak, look at the silver linings, like spending time with our kids and whatever else we do. And um, yeah, there was definitely a lot of silver linings in it. I think, I think one of the things I, I learned from that was I, I had subconsciously put a lot of um, financial pressure on myself to, uh, you know, to turn over X amount or to build, you know, do whatever to, to sort of make a certain amount of money. And this might resonate with some of your, your um, young sort of dentist audience. And then I sort of, obviously, I'm in a different position, you know, I've been a practitioner for 20 years. Um, but, you know, when, when I sort of sat down and, and I actually sort of took stock of what I had and, and you know, my life, I guess, and, and my um, obligations, financial obligations, um, you know, as I said, I, I worked out that I was quite lucky that I didn't have to um, to slog and to push and push and push and, and to, to be at work that, you know, that full time. And, and so it was quite good. It was a good way to, to sort of reset my perspective on, on dentistry and, uh, and life in general, I guess. Yeah, that's fantastic um, insight, and I, I definitely felt the same to you know a different degree because of a different stage in career. But that's that's right. We're lucky in dentistry. I say it a lot. We're lucky, even though it's tough at times, um, that we can, you know, if we choose to, we could work two days a week and still survive, which is amazing. Um, do you have any advice? Do you have any advice for the youngest um, graduates who uh, a lot of graduates? graduate and then they have these expectations of themselves to do certain things in a certain time or produce certain amounts of money etc any advice for those people who put a lot of stress on themselves in that way well you know i, I probably don't have anything um, more to add in terms of perspective and, and i've heard this on your podcast before about you know not you've not listened to the podcast <laughs> uh, so i had to do my research before i went into it you know it, yeah, it was enough. like it was like studying for an exam i had to prepare yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um yeah look i i can't remember the exact uh person who said it in one of your on your cast but I'm just saying you know don't everyone sort of learns and grows and develops at their own pace and and um you know the uh, saying I, i've i've really lived by the last um uh, say f- three four five years is is comparison is a thief of joy and and what that means is I think the way I interpret it is that, you know, I, I constantly look, used to look left and right, forward and back, you know, people around me. And I used to compare myself to them, you know, whether it was, uh, you know, yeah, let's say, you know, what's co- what car they drove and what car I wanted to drive or what sort of procedures they were doing and how well they were doing the procedures. And, and I used to get really down on myself. And um, and yeah, I was literally that that sort of comparison was literally sucking out the the joy and, and happiness in my life. So I think um, one thing that I, I can probably and I wish I could have done a little bit different is maybe not compare myself as much to other people. Um, and I think all of us as dentists we're inherently competitive, high achievers. That's how we got into dentistry in in, in the first place. And so that we're used to being the top of the class and being you know and and now like let's say. If you if you're a successful practice, you're in the top one percent of, of of earners in Australia, and you're used to that, right? But and then there might be an expectation that you're going to continue that in your life. But then I think maybe you know for me, I, there came a point where I I thought, well, I don't necessarily want or need to be that guy or that person, you know, and 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 I just sort of started to take more pride in what I did and accepted my limitations, except for except the things I could do. Uh, and do them to the best of my ability, and and that was that, you know. And it certainly changed my outspo- uh, out- outlook on things. And it makes you so much less stressed. 
just when you're comfortable. Do you think that comes from experience or do you think that's something us earlier career people can really just focus on and almost meditate on, so to speak? It's tough because you guys are in your early in your career and there is a lot to come in so many ways, you know, and, and I would and I would think and I would hope that no young dentist out there is is gonna say, Oh yep, that's it, that's all the you know I ever need to learn, that that five years of uni and and I'm not going to push myself and, and not compare myself. You know what I mean? So, And it's ironic that I say that because, believe it or not, that was kind of my attitude to dentistry when I first graduated. I, I wasn't that keen on dentistry, believe it or not, you know, and, and, and that led me to what I thought were greener pastures. But, uh, you know, things came around full circle and, and here I am now 20 years later speaking to, to you and your audience. Isn't it funny? Uh, we've had a lot of people have similar situations where they're not that keen in dental school or, or they had no idea they liked it before they like graduated or something like that. Now they've become some of the best in the game. Tell us a bit about, just before we get into that, tell us a bit about um, you know where you grew up and when you decided to do dentistry. Okay, so I, I was born in Malaysia. So I'm Malaysian Chinese um, ethnically and I guess um, you know originally Malaysian. Um, but my parents decided that they wanted to uh, to move to the states when when I was quite young to to go to to, uh, to uni to Kansas University in the US. So they packed up and they took me and my sister across um, to the states, and then we lived there for about three years. Um, after that, they they had to leave; they're only on student visas. So we moved back to Malaysia just for a short period of time. Uh, but this was in the in the mid mid eighties, mid to sort of getting to the late eighties, and, and Singapore was booming. So we actually moved to Singapore for a while. And that was close enough to home, you know, so for my parents to see their parents and, and my uncles and aunties and cousins, uh, you know, so it was it was good. It was close enough to home. Um, but I guess because they'd, they'd lived life in, in the West and, and they knew what that was about, and, and I'm not sure if you know much about the um, the Asian education system, you know, being being quite strict and regimented, even for, for you know, young kids. They, they thought, oh, they wanted something a bit different for me and my sister, so they moved us to New Zealand. And so that's that's where my parents eventually settled, and and I um, I did my high school in New Zealand and, and my university uh, in New Zealand. So, so I, I kind of count New Zealand as home. I, I don't have a Malaysian passport anymore. I um, I gave that up to get my New Zealand passport and citizenship. So that's that's very much home. But I, I haven't lived there in a while either. Actually, um, I must have caught the nomadic genes from my parents because um, so I, I did university of a target dentistry there. And I spent a couple of years working in New Zealand. The big test is, do you support the All Blacks? Oh, 100%. 100%. It's funny though, right? <laughs> that's like, not fair, it's, just because you live there. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It's it's easy to support a winner. It's easy to back a winner. But uh, and and uh, my wife's Kiwi. That's why. Ah, oh, cool. All right. And and I'll get I'll get lynched for saying it, but I, I sometimes I'm a little bit <laughs> not happy, but when the All Blacks lose. Because oh, it, it kind of got to lose sometimes exactly, yeah. and and I and I always take the view that it's good for world rugby. You know, you can't have I someone that's agree. so dominant yep. the whole time. You want to see that there's some competition elsewhere, and um, and I must admit, you know, like I, I, I've I've lived in Australia now. My my son was born here, so um, so he's Aussie, and uh, and if, if they're not playing the All Blacks, I support the Wallabies. So <laughs> yeah, <there> you, <laughs> you and my wife will get along great. <laughs> so you. <laughs> So you did your undergraduate dentistry at Targo University, in New Zealand, um, and then you you practiced in New Zealand for a little while. Yeah, is that right? That's right. So I, I, I spent a year in the um, in Wellington Hospital, and and that's it's funny. I was talking to this about this to somebody um, to to a recently returned maxillofacial surgeon, um, Doctor, I should I say, Mister Eddie Newen, just uh, last weekend, mm. 
And uh, so he, he's he's a Melbourne boy, and he he was born and bred here, and he trained here. But as part of his MaxFax training, he went to um, uh, to New Zealand, and he he experienced the New Zealand hospital dentistry system, and and he sort of reminded me, uh, and we had a, a conversation over a few drinks, and he reminded me how unique that was. Um, so the the hospital system in New Zealand, you effectively are working as a house officer or a house surgeon, uh, but you're a maxillofacial house surgeon, so. Depending on what center you're in, what hospital you're in, you do get exposed to to effectively hospital dentistry, which is which is um, a subspecialty in itself, I believe. And for me, my experience was was amazing. You know, I um, I went there, and you know, you were thrown in the deep end. I remember vividly going to these big grand round multidisciplinary meetings. Um, mm. The hospital I was at was Wellington Hospital. And, uh, and we were sort of the uh, the oncology center of, of the Wellington region. And, of course, you know, with, with patients about to undergo chemo or radiotherapy, dental health is important, you know, especially the, the head and neck cancers. So these patients would come in to get triage and screened by us at our clinic. And and I remember going to these meetings, and here I was. I was, I was 22 at the time, 22, maybe 23. I, I was maybe about three or four years out of dental school sitting in a room with the consultant surgeon, the consultant oncologist sitting there discussing this case. And then they would ask me a question about the teeth, about this patient. They'd all turn around and look at me and I'd sat there like this, you know, this young, fresh-faced grad. And i go, oh, yeah, you know, that, those molars are going to be in the path of the, of the beam, so we should definitely take this out. There's a couple of large amalgam fillings out. I was, I, was, I was faking it. Well, I wasn't making it. I was, <laughs> I was faking it before I had made it, you know, as they always say. I got to sit in the background of one of those meetings um, as a student you said at Westmead Hospital. That was the oncology area for Sydney or that area of Sydney. And uh, I could only imagine if you're actually getting asked the questions. So, <laughs> you was, survived. Was, <laughs> I, yeah, that's right. It, it was scary. and uh, But, you know, that was unique and that was my experience. And, and there are other experiences that I picked up from that which have stayed with me, you know, for 20 plus years. So you would recommend people say they're studying in New Zealand right now they to go into the New Zealand dental hospital setting? Or? Yeah, and I and I believe it's still as popular and competitive to get into as it was in my time. Uh, it was I, I can't remember off the top of my head how many um, dental house officer or house surgeon place uh, positions there are, but um, there's yeah there's certainly not I would say less than a quarter of the class ended up getting one. Just at a rough estimate, I can't remember off the top of my head. Uh, so yeah, they're they're very highly competitive and highly sought. They're not very well paid, you know, and that's that's the honest truth. But uh, yeah, I think I think my dental assistants get paid more than I did as a dental house surgeon now, you know. So but, oh well, it's, it is twenty years ago. It's foundational <laughs> learning, though. Exactly, that's on. right. Yeah. yeah, and and you know that's um that's what I've learned in in twenty plus years of practice is that you have your whole life to make money, you know, uh, hmm. and I think. Opportunities like that may only come once, once in a lifetime. So take those opportunities if you can. So before, when I asked you, um, you know, what would you do if you weren't doing dentistry? I was hoping you would say DJing, because um, you then did a uh, a diploma. Tell us a bit a bit about that. I did. So I, I um, did a diploma in audio engineering, and that that came from uh, my DJing sort of background. So. I picked up DJing in high school, and 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 I literally DJed my way through uni. Uh, and at times it was it, it was a priority. I, I must admit, it probably was a priority over dentistry at times. Which, which um, you know, I, one of my regrets in life is not focusing and, and applying myself as much in dental school as I as I could. 
have, but, um, you know, but I guess... It's worked out well. I was just going to say, you know, I, I've managed to turn it around. So, you know, so there's hope There's hope for everybody, you know. There's hope for everyone, yeah. That's really funny. I um, I DJed with a couple of mates through more through high school and then early um, university and it paid for – we get paid to go to the parties that we'd go to anyway and then yeah. it was just good times. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was great. So, uh, but yeah, so I, I wanted to, to – I, and I wasn't – for whatever reason, I wasn't really into dentistry as much as I am now, and and uh, and I thought, look, I'd, I'd give it a crack. And there was this um, there's this opportunity to do a diploma part time, so I did. So I, I actually moved to Auckland, New Zealand, and um, worked effectively full time. Uh, I, I, I remember saying to to my boss at the time, I said, "Oh, look, I'm doing this diploma part time, um, so you know, I, I can only do X number of hours." And so he he worked it out for me, and I ended up doing weekends and evenings and things like that. And, and yeah, so I did this diploma and, um, and I remember the day I finished, I remember thinking to myself, oh, given, given that a go, I'm not going to do that again. Cause I, I learned, well, I, I learned that I, as much as I thought I wasn't cut out to be a dentist, I definitely wasn't cut out to be an audio engineer because a lot of people on the course were, were musos. You know, there were some very, very talented people, um, musically in the course. And, and I was this sort of, I, I came in with like this you know desire to to fiddle with music technology and and pull some you know levers and and faders and twist some knobs and and whatever um but then i realized that you know that you inherently needed a bit of musical artistry and musical knowledge and now to to be able to do that to any sort of degree of effectiveness you couldn't just be a pure technical audio engineer or you could i'm sure you could but i i figured that i was never really gonna you know make my mark in the in the sound engineering world so i stopped djing for similar reasons i was 10 times worse than you by the sounds of it but um yeah i was like oh yeah that, that's i'm not actually that good at that um <laughs> <laughs> do you think the the doing that though having that side interest do you think that is what helped you get through that period of um slightly disinterested in dentistry or would you recommend it to someone who's in a similar boat yeah, I, I definitely would, um, and I've I've come across so many people who um, felt the same as me. And I remember when I was doing my postgrad, um, there was a student in final year, and she she was adamant that as soon as she finished dentistry, she was going to get a degree. She wasn't going to practice dentistry uh, again, and and I believe she went off and, and did uh, teaching, or she she wanted to be a teacher. And I don't know how far she got into that. I think she wanted to be uh, you know like a primary school early childhood teacher. Um, and I, I, I didn't know her. I didn't have any interaction with her. I just heard sort of through the grapevine, through some other sort of mutual friends that that was what happened. But I, I believe, um, she, she is a dentist now. She hasn't sort of followed that path. Um, and then I've got some, some very good friends, two very good friends in New Zealand. Um, one of them currently is also in addition to being a dentist, he owns a cafe and a pretty successful, good cafe, I believe, uh, in, in, in Auckland and his brother, is uh, he did his brother did a uh, diploma in design? They, his brother was really into fashion design, and he did that. And I believe he's got his own label and his own gallery as well now. So, I think you know dentistry is is a is a profession. It's a career that that is amenable to to multiple sort of interests. And you can, as as you said at the start, you can you can work two days a week and still you know make a decent income, make a decent living, and and keep you know keep in in the game, so to speak, or keep in dental dentistry as a career so to speak but also devote the rest of your time to do something else so 
Yeah, I think um, it, it does allow that entirely. If you're crazy, you could start a dental podcast like I did. <laughs> yeah, your your too, side yeah. thing is, is <laughs> dentistry as well. But it, it does. It allows us to do these other side little things. And, uh, you know, I do other little bits and pieces, mostly in the dental realm. But um, I love that, the, that dentistry allows me to do that. If I was a doctor, which I, I wouldn't be, but if I was a doctor, you know, you're doing all these crazy hours, it's just not going to work like that. So, yeah, we've got opportunity for sure. So how did you end up? From here, a little bit of disinterest and doing a diploma to becoming a prosthodontist. Okay, so after um, I finished and I decided that I, I couldn't, or not couldn't, didn't want to do all the engineering, I was sort of looking around and saying, okay, what next, what next? You know, I still hadn't really ignited my love of dentistry um, then. Uh, and at the time, being a 1999 graduate, I was lucky enough that I could go to the UK and work there as a dentist without sitting in the exam. So that's what I did. And, and of, you know, we all... Being a New Zealand citizen and, and Australian, we, we have that two-year working holiday visa thing. So that was my backup, but actually ended up that not only did I register as a dentist with the GDC in the UK, but I also got sponsored. So I could actually stay for much, much longer than the two years. Um, so that's what I did. You know, I, and, and I'd never been to Europe before. I'd never traveled despite me living in the States and around Asia and New Zealand. Uh, I hadn't really traveled to that part of the world before. So I thought, oh, this is a great opportunity. So uh, so that's what I did. So I moved to the UK, and um, and at the time, my my thought processes, you know, I'd heard a little bit about dentistry in the UK, and I heard that oh, if you work in the NHS, you got to work super fast. You know, you're going to see 50 patients a day or whatever, whatever. And I thought, oh my god, I can't, I can't do that. There's no way. So I wanted to go look for a private practice job where I could see less patients. You know, there'd be less pressure in that regard. And I thought, okay, and I could also do dentistry, you know, at a at a high standard. So I did. Uh, I ended up with um with the job in Somerset, England, of of all places. Um, Somerset's a, it's sort of like a, a a sort of a country county, if you will. They're they're well known for cider. They make a make a good cider. That's and uh, yeah. Yeah, so so Somerset is um you know where Bath is you know the, the old Roman baths Bath the the um the, the city um it's also home to actually no it's not home I was going to say home to Exeter but that's in a different county but anyway where I ended up was was about halfway between Exeter um, Bath and Bristol so fairly rural um, but I got to practice dentistry to uh, in, a, in a private practice. And um, and that was fun and that was good and 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 at the time the the UK pound to New Zealand dollar the conversion rate was quite good and I managed to pay off my student loan, um, but my partner and I my partner at the time and I we kind of got bored of living in the country so we decided to move to to London, and that's what I did and London being London is a bit more competitive, so I I, I had to to get an NHS job but by then I was I was sort of maybe four years out of dentistry and I thought I was getting the hang of it. So I was comfortable to go apply for an NHS job, and and what they said about the NHS was true. Um, there's you know there's a lot of a lot of volume. You can certainly you know spend all day cutting crown preps if if that was what you would wanted to do. Um, there's also a lot of dodgy stuff, and so there was a bit of both that led me to do pros. So you know by virtue of doing more and more of fixed and removable pros, I, I realized I really quite enjoy this. And, um, but at the same time, I knew that I wasn't doing it quite unquote properly. You know, I, I knew that working in the UK and the NHS system, there were corners that I was cutting. I knew that my knowledge was limited and, and uh, that I wasn't really doing these patients a, a favor, you know, um, or, or myself. Mm. 
Yeah, yeah. Spark that desire to to learn more and do more. Yeah. Correct. Do you yeah, think the the travel, the the choice to move to England and then you know see a bit of Europe and all the rest of it? Um, do you think that travel was one of the things? I'm trying to get that picture of what brought you back to dentistry in a way because I know a lot of people do struggle with that. Um, you know, lacking interest or struggling a bit with where they're going, if that makes sense. Yeah, it did because you know you, you you're changing your scene, you're changing your perspective. Uh, and I was lucky enough to change dental perspective because you know dentistry in, in in the UK is different to how dentistry is practiced here, or at least it was back then. Uh, and you know, it might still be. I don't know. Uh, so you know, having that different perspective. It, it again, a bit like this whole COVID lockdown, it made me stop and take stock of, of what I have, what I had, and what opportunities are available to me. And, uh, you know, and and speaking of opportunities, you know, I was lucky living in London because London's great, home to some great universities. And, and I would go and do CPD courses and, mm-hmm. and interact with these um, world-renowned lecturers and speakers, uh, you know, and, and, and that also helped as well, you know, here I was in 1999 thinking to myself, right, that's it, I'm done with dentistry and I'm, I'm not going to, you know, learn or study anymore. And then all of a sudden, you know, five years on in 2003 or four, going to these lectures at King's College and going to, you know, the Eastman just for just for CPD courses, not nothing too formalized. And that sort of knowledge gaining, I guess, sort of started to the spark in me. And, and I ended up doing a membership exam through the Royal College of Surgeons uh, in the UK as a result of all of that. And uh, and that, I guess, was what really prompted and sparked that desire to go and do more postgraduate education because I had a taste of it. You know, we had to do, um, it was the, the, the membership exams, a bit different to the Royal Australasian College. There were three parts to it. Yeah, so at the time, and it doesn't exist anymore, unfortunately. There's now a, a new uh, membership uh, diploma but at the time, there was a membership in the Faculty of General Dental Practitioners. This is what I did. And the first part was was exam-based. You know, you'd go in there and you said, luckily, it wasn't as as, um, as onerous as the primaries exam that we have with RACDS here. You know, you go there and it was straight away uh, very much dental practice-based. And I guess that's a reflection of it being called the General Dental Practitioner uh, Faculty. And so you do exams. There was um, there was a short answer. There was a, uh, I don't think there was, a, oh, yeah, there was a multi-choice and um, and there was a Viva and an OSCE. There was also a coursework component. So you had to do a, a case presentation. You had to show some practice accreditation stuff. Um, so there, there, was, there was quite a bit, invo- it was quite involved. And then um, then there was some finals, the part threes, the final finals where you would present your case. They would ask you about it. Um, and then they would, you would have a, an OSCE and, and an oral exam. So you know, it was all very stressful at the time, um, but it was good for me, you know, because it, it forced me, or well, not forced, because I wanted to at the time, you know, I, I wanted to learn more and I did. And um, and then shortly after that, I decided two things. One, I was getting a little bit homesick, lived in London for a while. And two, I decided that I wanted to do pros. So I went and applied back to the Otago, uh, University of Otago. And um, yeah, and I got in and I started my pros degree in 2007, finished in 2009. And then after that, moved to Sydney before eventually settling in Melbourne. So you like to travel, like to move around. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I, I, I guess I do. But you know, Melbourne's home for me now. You know, um, yeah. As I said, I got a I got a young baby. Uh, got married a few years ago. You know, starting to put down some roots, and it's quite nice. In 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 ways, I, I I've never stayed at a practice for as long as I have 
in my current practice, uh, I haven't lived in the same city for as long as I've lived in, you know, in Melbourne. So it's good to, you know, to really get some roots down for sure. Yeah, that's great. And Melbourne, Melbourne's a pretty good place. Some great culture, some great coffee. Um, tell us about the time before before being a prosthodontist or even actually now as a prosthodontist. Tell us about some of the mentors you've had and what they've done to, to shape you or what a lack of them may have had on you. So I guess my, my mentors in pros, uh, you, you, you'd have to credit the, or I would have to credit the, the lecturers I had at um, at the University of Otago. And at the time, Otago was, was I, I've learned this after the fact, but at the time, Otago was unique in that we actually had the most number of full-time prosthodontic faculty in any course in Australasia. Um, and there were a few. Uh, we At the time when I joined, we had this new prosthodontist, this French prosthodontist who was American-trained, Vincent Bonani. And, and he brought a European-American style of prosthodontics to the course, which um, which was, you know, as, as you know through social media now and seeing what people post online, you know, the American or oh, the Europeans uh, and the Americans, I guess, um, do some some very very high quality work in terms of aesthetics, in terms of the quality of what they produce, um, and that was a big influence on me. You know, this was 2007, and this was before the days of, of social media. Uh, it's certainly not as big as it is right now, and so it was hard to 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 get, I guess, you know, cases and and and, and information from others except through textbooks and through journals. But then we had um, Dr. Banani come in, and, and and he'd had cases that he'd done, you know, as a practitioner in, in France, and I, I I think he had cases that he'd done, you know, in, in his training as well, and he just showed us the stuff, and it was quite inspirational, you know. So that sort of started my journey in terms of what I wanted to do, or how I wanted to practice pros. But then at the same time, we had some some very traditional prosthodontists at the university, uh, Dr. Alan Payne, who was. Um, he was very big in the academic world with regards to publishing on implant dentistry, implant overdenture specifically, and and he also instilled a um, sort of a degree of, of passion in me in removable pros, which I never really had going into it. But but he 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 was really into removable prosthodontics, and and he actually was in charge of teaching us removable pros. So we had a good uh, year and a half of that with him, and that helped a lot. Um, and then after graduation, the two two people that I exposure to were my my first two bosses, um, Dr. Stephen Travis and Dr. Prashant Patel in Sydney. Uh, they work in Bondi Junction, and both of them are, are excellent clinicians. They um, they again do very very good work. But what they introduced me to was, I guess, what a a, a modern prosthodontist was and should be doing. And both of them, and Prashant especially was always into digital and, you know, they, they owned, this was in 2019, sorry, 2010, and they had a CEREC machine, so which was at the time quite quite unusual for a prosthodontist. You know, prosthodontists are always considered, oh, you know, you take an impression, you send it for gold or PFM. But here was, was Stephen and Prashad saying, oh, no, we do all ceramic stuff, you know, and we have a CEREC machine. And they ended up employing an in-house um, dental technician, uh, a German dental technician, Oliver, Tilk, who started his own uh, lab in Sydney, uh, excellent um, technician. Uh, they had the digital toys. They had an in-house comb beam CT machine. They had a Nobel Procera scanner, which was you know quite quite unheard of at the time for a, a, a dental practice uh, clinician to have a benchtop lab scanner. That that was quite unheard of at the time. They had an intraoral scanner and the CEREC. 
and and they were really delving into some of the digital dentistry that that is effectively commonplace today. But I, I was lucky enough to be exposed to that in 2010, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, and not only was I exposed to that, I was exposed to that in the context of prosthodontics. So seeing how these two experienced, very good prosthodontists were using that technology uh, really influenced influenced me. Yeah, the highest levels of that as well, not just the run of the mill. It is interesting because 2010, there was, from my memory, this is before I even studied, was even in studying, but I was a dental assistant for years and we worked with, I worked with someone who had a CEREC. Um, and so the general feeling was that, yeah, not many prosthodontists were using um, any kind of um, system like that. But it's changed entirely now. And I would love to talk about a lot about digital dentistry. Where do you think, well, since then, um, where are we at with digital dentistry? It's, 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 I guess we're probably on version 3.0 of what we had, what I had in 2010. Uh, we're definitely on probably on version 3 of that now. Um, scanners have gotten quicker. Has it surpassed traditional methods, analog methods? That's tough. That's, that's, or is it at least equal? Let's not. I won't put you on the spot. Make you yeah. You'll you'll, it, you'll um yeah split the if you, field. <laughs> yeah. If you get if you get into the details, you know there is no clear winner. Um, because you know there, there's there's I, I did a lecture actually um, a couple of years ago at Quintessence in Sydney, uh, and I compared digital versus analog, uh, and I had two cases, and I was sort of throwing in some some literature in in there, and and the conclusion was that there were certainly things that you could do in digital much easier and, and, and probably not at all in, in analog, but there were tech, but a lot of the digital techniques have evolved from analog techniques, you see. So, you know, it, it's, they've just done things. You, you, there's just certain things you can do in digital you can't do traditionally. But that being said, there's, if you knew how to do things the analog way, you could still achieve similar or the same results. Uh, one thing that, that I think, and the literature will support me on this, where um, digital beats analog is in casting. Um, so casting, you know, big metal frameworks and that, you, I'd much rather trust CAD CAM these days in terms of accuracy, in terms of um, material properties, uh, things like that. Are you talking frameworks for dentures? Yeah, frameworks. Well, so when did that change? Um, like, so is that the cross arch... Um, because only recently that's become really quite good. Is is that right, or am I wrong there? No. Well, CAD CAM. Uh, you're talking about. I'm talking about implant CAD CAM single abutments, and then I'm talking about full arch. So CAD CAM, you know, milling is is what I'm specifically talking about. It's it's a subtractive process, and that has been very good for for a very long time. Um, the limiting factor at the time was the image acquisition, so the scanners. So I, I would say, just extrapolating, and I haven't got the uh, the literature to, to back me up on this, but just extrapolating, I would say that about 2010 is when uh, things really turned. Because prior to that, they, they were we didn't have optical scanners, or certainly not the scanners that we have today. In fact, the very first generation of the uh, Noble Procera scanners were a contact scanner. They had a little sapphire tip. And that is very accurate, yes, but there, there were certain things that it couldn't do. Uh, or certainly not, not as quickly as what we can do today. So I think the scanning and the image acquisition technology, once that caught up, then you could marry that to the already accurate milling process, and that's when you could get the accuracy that you're getting now. Now, another thing that's changed since then is not so much the technology, but the the availability and, I guess, the cost of these m- machines, mm-hmm. you know, um, 
again, going back to the Procera days, you, you could only send it to three milling centers in the world. If you had a Procera, uh, you wanted to make a Procera abutment, whether it was out of titanium or alumina, you could only send it to New Jersey um, or in Japan, I believe, later on, and one in Europe. So these there were three centers in the world because that's where these milling machines were. Um, similarly, around the same time, there was Cabo Everest. Now, Cabo Everest, I believe from memory, um, yeah, you could buy that and you could be a Cabo milling center. But again, there were few and far between. Fast forward to today, and, and it seems like every second lab has a mill. In fact, a lot of practitioners have a, have a five-axis mill now. So, you know, that technology is certainly becoming more widespread. Yeah, it's it's obviously evolving at a pretty rapid pace, as with all technology at the moment. What are the things that what's exciting you about the future developments in digital dentistry? The the software side for sure. Um, how we actually, I think, how we acquire the the data uh, in terms of whether it's say cone beam CT scan and you're getting a you know it's the dicom of a patient's um, you know heart tissue. Uh, Intraoral scans obviously they can get better and better, but you know we're pretty pretty good now in terms of accuracy and there's lots of studies to, to support that um so in terms of image acquisition that's fine but it's, it's how the software manipulates that information and, and and i guess how the companies package these software programs into user-friendly experiences i think that's going to be the next big change so for example um right now let's say implant implant planning software you know now there's a big shift towards guided implant surgery because now the availability of intraoral scanners is, is much uh it's, it's easy to get one easy enough to get one and even if you don't have one you can still take a stone impression and your lab will be able to scan it and you can you know do some pretty cool stuff when you when you merge that with your cone beam ct data file but then and we had that in 2010 you know i, I remember i did the one of the first few guided cases was in about 2010 We'd done, uh, you know, Noble. And in fact, prior to that, I remember in the UK in, in the mid-2000s, they were showing Noble Guide already. So that technology has been around for a while and that the concept's been around for a while. But at the time, there were a lot of things that we had to, to hack. And I remember Prashant had, had managed to, to find a way to do a, um, effectively, a bone reduction guide, you know, and like you could do a, so that you're doing an all-on-four, and you wanted to guide your surgeon to where to do the alveolectomy, you know, before you place the implants. And Prashant had this little hack where he would put, um, you know, some guide pins into the um, into the into the plan. That was, you know, that the technology wasn't was there, but the software wasn't. You know, now you've got these software programs that will specifically allow you to do that. Will allow you to to cut teeth off, do a bone supported guide, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, other things that are, have improved in in software side. So it would be um, d- tooth libraries. So now you have these, you know, these tooth libraries available to you, and the, and the software algorithms to, to you know, effectively mold that tooth library to your prepared tooth. It's so much better than it was, you know, back then. So, so how are you doing wax ups? So me at the moment, um, digitally. So I I um, use a program called Exocad. and uh, and I for me now I take my intraoral scanner. I'll scan the patient. Uh, if I'm trying to open their vertical dimension, I'll scan them at the desired vertical dimension and then I'll import that into my program and then I'll, I'll use these tooth libraries and I'll effectively click and drag and copy and paste these teeth into it. I'll modify the teeth according to the patient's occlusion, according to the aesthetic uh, outcomes that I want to achieve and then I'll 3D print that wax up and and then that's it. You know, And the beauty of that is, it, yeah, well, it, I can do it at home after I've put my kid to bed 
uh, in my pajamas. Uh, it's it's great, you know. Whereas in the old days, I'd have to to after work come home, have dinner, whatever, pick up my things, go to work, sit down in front of my my Bunsen, you know, or my electric waxer, and and sit there and do wait or do that on the weekend, you know. And, and um, yeah, exactly. And that that was. Yeah, that was tough. That was tough. You clearly enjoy it. Yeah, you have to. You know, you you'd ha- you have to, and I did. You know, it's it, waxing up is is quite cathartic in many ways because you're sitting there, you're working on teeth, but without the tongue, <laughs> saliva, <laughs> without patient, patient. Yeah, it's quite <laughs> nice. And I often wonder. Actually, that could be that could be another job. If I wasn't a dentist, I'd probably be a dental technician. <laughs> yeah, Maybe, yeah, I don't know. yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, I think when I first reached out to you, it was it was a, quite a while ago, and you just done a little segment with the ADA about digital technology, and you were talking about wax ups digitally. And I remember you talking about Exocad. Now, I think one of the issues there is for many of the associates and perhaps students. Um, you know, access to these programs, it's very expensive and um, access to a lot of this stuff is the limiting factor, although it's getting a lot better. How do you suggest um, dentists get involved with digital technologies if they're an associate? Um, are there any other ways around or are there any free programs to train on? Is there anything they can do? For sure. So there are um, a few free implant planning programs. Now, these programs will let you import um, DICOM files from a cone beam CT and I'll let you plan. So the, 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 the two famous ones are uh, Blue Sky Bio and Implastation. Uh, and of course, if you want to do any exporting of guides or manufacturing of guides, there's a, there's a click fee, meaning that every export costs you money. Mm, mm. And, uh, but that's, that's definitely a very, very good start. Now, in terms of, say, CAD software for, um, for teeth, there's actually a couple. So I'll start with the more traditional one. The first one is Mesh Mixer. And if you just Google online, you know, YouTube or, or Facebook, there'll be a lot of mesh, mesh mixer is a, a software program made by the manufacturers of AutoCAD, which is a very, very powerful CAD design software, but it's free. And, and I still use it too, actually. I use it for uh, one specific task that's to, to make my, my models uh, watertight so that they can be 3D printed. But there's some very, very cool things you can do with it. Um, and there are a lot of tutorials online on how to use mesh mixer. And there are also libraries. There are libraries that you can do to do uh, to do very similar things that you would you would do in ExoCAD, there's I, I've learned in the last month of another program. Um, it's it's it, I can't remember. I think it's called Mesh Lab, um, and there's now there are now dental modules released specifically for Mesh Lab, which you have to pay for, unfortunately, but they're nowhere the same fee as as a full uh, ExoCAD or a Three Shape or a Dental Wings license. But you've got these modules you can pay and add on, and 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 these modules basically simplify the process. Um, you know, where people have to do everything manually. Now you've got these sort of modules to to basically act as as wizards to help guide you through the process. So, would you say something like Mesh Mixer can get the job done, but not easily? Is that kind of the right yeah. answer, or like these paid programs just make it a lot easier? I would. I look. I haven't delved into it in detail, so I don't know. But uh, I, I believe for I think for wax ups you could probably do it in Mesh Mixer or Mesh Labs quite a Mesh Lab quite easily. Um, in terms of actually getting, uh, let's say you want to make an implant crown on a tie base, probably not. Um, but don't quote me; I, I'm not sure. You know, but uh, yeah, certainly, certainly for for I guess yeah, just to dip your toes in it. Yeah, I think it's. I was going to say we can get our feet wet. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. What about smile design? Is that something that um, 
I guess, are you using small design software or are you just doing freehand techniques with um, different programs? What are you doing? I'm doing um, a lot of, I'm using the three shape one because it's built into the, uh, the software and, uh, and it's quite good. You know, there's, uh, there's some, some features in it, which are quite, quite um, useful and very, very quick. That's the reason I use it because I can, I can literally sit there after I've seen a new patient for a consult take a couple of photos and sit there live in front of them in a matter of minutes, you know, do a quick smile design. And, and it's got a really cool feature now where it gives you, instead of just the wireframe outlines, it actually gives you some virtual simulated teeth. Um, there, there are things that I wish I could do with it. And you can if you had the full Implant Studio package, the lab side, and that is to effectively do a 3D smile design. Um, but you know, in, in terms of, and, and so there are limitations, you know, smile design, I, I believe that there are limitations. I, I haven't done any formal smile design training. I haven't done a Christian coachman's course, uh, but I do believe that they do have specific ways of taking photos to help eliminate some of the errors that I'm talking about. But essentially, you know, you, you've got a 2D image of something and you're, you're drawing on this 2D image where you want the smile to be, but that 2D image is very much predicated about how you took that photo, what angle you are, taking that photo from so if you're just standing a little bit off askew from the center of the patient or the head is slightly turned it looks like they're you know one side of their, their teeth is a lot wider than the other you know what i mean so it's, it's hard to to get that perfect symmetry if your photo isn't correct so there i think i believe that there's a lot of emphasis on on, on the the photography process but for me i always wanted to to um to do a 3d version of it and, and i sort of can do that there are i've got two little tricks that i do for that um, one is is to and everybody does this. Technicians do this. They'll, you'll just superimpose your um, your photo onto into ExoCAD and superimpose it onto your three D model, and you can do it that way. Or and I've done this a handful of times. You can actually get a face scanner, and you can actually import a three D face scan of the patient, mesh that or merge that with your three D intraoral scan, and you can do the wax up smile design that way. Only problem with that is I can't do that live with the patient. That takes time to do. But I, th- I think it's a good start for sure, smile design. Yeah, yeah. I, I think, um, well, there's many different ways to do it. It's many different programs. And um, I guess it depends what you've got access to and what you've been taught on, I guess. Um, I remember learning on PowerPoint a way of doing it, which was pretty effective as well. So um, there's nothing wrong with that. No, that's, yeah, exactly. Uh, and I know, um, yeah, some very, very good clinicians who still just do it by PowerPoint or Keynote. And, and they, they work with their technicians who are able to read that information and do some beautiful uh, wax-ups and do some beautiful work. So, yeah. What about printing? Where do you think that comes into dentistry in the future? And is it is it kind of there? You obviously print your models, your wax-ups. So, printing is, is developing at a fairly rapid pace as well. Um, it's not unfortunately there yet. There are some inherent uh, accuracy or, or trueness and precision issues with with printing with some of the more you know affordable slash commercially available printers. Um, so you know, Form Labs is is one. I'm not saying Form Labs. In fact, Form Labs is very good, but there are inherently, according to the research and, and anecdotally, there are some issues with the accuracy. So I, I don't think that um, for the majority of us, 3D printing will replace um, stone models if that's what we're using it for. To, for example, do a PFM. However, there are some very, very good, you know, full sort of industrial scale size printers, and, and there's certainly some for use in dentistry, who are very, which which are very, very good. And uh, and according to again to the research, it, it shows that there the accuracy, the trueness, and precision is there. 
But these things, as far as I'm aware, they're, they're probably out of the reach of most, uh, if not all, practitioners. To you know, you just wouldn't have one of these machines in your in your uh, clinic, uh, and even some labs uh, are not in a position to to get one of these. So there, there's still a way to go with printing. I think you know, with with digital scan, with optical intraoral scanning. Uh, we're sort of reaching to a point where you know, we're already talking about you know microns in terms of accuracy. So you know there's only a little bit more to go, but with with printing, there's I think there's potentially a little uh, quite a lot more to go. That makes a lot of sense, and I guess it's a little bit like Porcera milling. 10, 15 years ago, you could only do it in three places and it's a big mill and all the rest of it. And now we've got five access mills in, in you know, private practices around the country. Correct. So um, it's, it's definitely changing rapidly. So obviously you do a lot of work digitally. You, you have a passion for it. You teach on it. Um, it's a fascinating part of dentistry at the moment. What's not good in digital that perhaps some people are doing um, and what are you still doing in an analog form? So for me, um, I still... I'm doing my dentures analog, um, you know, my, my full dentures and, and potentially even my chromes. So for full dentures, oh, my partials. For full dentures, the reason I, I do that analog is because, you know, one, it can be quite hard to scan mobile tissues. So scanners uh, are limited by the ability to pick up mobile tissues. And there are a lot of people out there and I've, you know, seen on, on social media, I've seen videos and demonstrations where it's possible to do you know, an edentulous mandibular scan with the scanner. So the tech, the, the possibilities are there. Um, for me, I, I just can't can't do it. Uh, I've tried a few times with limited success, but certainly, you know, I'm not getting the extensions that I want. For the upper, the other consideration is, you know, if you're doing an intraoral scan, you're effectively taking a, a completely mucostatic impression. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, and and that ne- not, is not necessarily one I want to achieve. You know, I, I believe in mm-hmm. selective pressure and in, in a partial mucocompressive technique where you're you're compressing the posterior palatal seal, for example, and uh, and then also you know functional border molding and things like that, which you just can't do with an intraoral scanner. So for me, the actual image or the data acquisition um, has to be analog. Mm-hmm. Do you think those inherent limitations are going to be a barrier that may? Well, it'll probably be uh, passed at some point, but the the limitation is more than just the capacity of the technology. It's the actual technique. Um, do you think there might be a program that that guesses how much compression, or is that too variable between our patients? Um, that's a that's an interesting question. I think it, it could also be down to the clinician to uh, perhaps use a tool like in, in traditional pros. We we uh, used to actually palpate that posterior area to see how much compression we a could get and b needed to get we just use a simple ball burnisher and just compress it and there were different sizes we could do and it could be that that could be a parameter that you could input into an intraoral scan you say okay in this area the tissue is x millimeters compressible so let's you know input this into the to the scan so that we would build our denture or we would modify the the scan accordingly um, you mentioned technique. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know what's going to come. There's going to be someone who's far smarter than me that might come up with a way of, of being able to capture a, a functional sulcus, uh, you know, with an intraoral scanner. Uh, so, you know, there's never say never, you know, this, I think that there's, yeah, a lot of people who, who are far more passionate than me and far more intelligent than me working on, on, on these sorts of things. And, and, I, and I can't wait for them to come up with it so I can, you know, implement it myself. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We'll listen to this in 20 years and just laugh at what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, speaking of technology, there's one thing which really interested me, which uh, I haven't heard of lately, is the use of ultrasound 
is an intraoral scanner. So oh right now, all our optical our scanners are optical. We use light, mm. and of course, with light, you know, with saliva, with moisture, aside from the tissues covering your prepped margin, you know, it's going to change the refractive index of the light, so the accuracy will will definitely be affected. But then there's, there there is already there are already working prototypes uh, of of ultrasound scanners that are small enough to fit in the mouth. And of course, with ultrasound, it, it doesn't matter what moisture is there, it doesn't matter what you know what's in the way. It will actually you know, be able to go through the the soft tissue and the saliva and the blood and actually capture your um, your margins that way. So, um, yeah, wow. that 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 was a thing of the past. Yeah, exactly. So that that was very interesting <laughs> to me. And th- when I sort of I looked at it, I was like, oh yeah, great, can't wait. And I remember seeing this in 2015, and I think they pre- they presented uh, or or uh, they showed a prototype at the IDS um, mm-hmm. in in. Um, in Germany, but uh, that was the last I've heard of them. I subscribed to their mm. mailing list, and I've never to this day received an update. <laughs> so I, I don't know what's happening there. But you know, the the, the proof of concept is there. It's been published. They published it um, in a couple of um, non dental uh, journals. So the proof of concept is there. I think you know they they may have conceptually. Experiment. Yeah, conceptually, it, it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, who knows? That's the thing. Ten years, it'll be a, it'll be a very different game. Yeah. Um, so, Speaking of 10 years, so about 10 years ago, you did your ceramics thesis um, as your postgrad. Um, can you tell us a bit about, uh, I want the short notes for a student or a graduate. Yep. Okay. <laughs> um, you know, what's the important stuff that we perhaps we're missing with ceramics? Well, it's funny. I, I um, Okay, so my, my, my thesis was, and this is my, you know, my declendent thesis, it, it was on uh, the effects of grinding of ceramics and on the strength. Of, of these ceramics and and where it came out from was actually a clinical conundrum that i had i used to do you know veneers and some um, ceramic all ceramic restorations in, in practice in the uk and i would like have to sit there and adjust because you know technicians when you're only paying 35 pounds for a crown you're not going <laughs> to get a very good quality crown so you know i had to do a lot of adjustments all the time a lot of occlusal adjustments for example and I, I would get a few of them come back after i ground them down and they would break and i thought oh you know that's a pain in the ass so that sort of, you know, when, when it came time to do my, my degree or my, my declendent, I was sort of said, oh, do you have a research project you might want to do? So I said, oh, okay, yeah, I want to work out, you know, the effects of grinding on ceramic strength. Um, and, yeah, it just so happened that, you know, it had been studied before in the past, so we had to do a little spin on it that was unique and new. So my, my specific um, topic was on grinding on veneering porcelain uh, of mm-hmm. all ceramic cores. So at the time, you know, this is 2007, mid-2000s, uh, we were still using alumina and we were veneering mm. alumina. Zirconia was just coming out. Uh, there was lithium disilicate. You know, Emacs was, was new, but we were still talking about Empress. So I was looking mm-hmm. at specifically the veneering porcelain. Uh, and and the, the summary, the executive summary of it is uh, anytime you adjust porcelain, you must polish it. So mm. and, and that also applies to Zirconia and Emacs and, and the restorations we use today. So anytime you have to do any occlusal adjustment at all, you weaken that porcelain for a variety of reasons. Um, you know, micro cracks, uh, rough sort of surface areas. You know, ceramics are inherently brittle. And so in, in tension, if there is a flaw, i.e. a grinding groove or a facet, um, then that, that can potentially be the source of the crack initiation or even crack propagation if there's already a micro crack and you're going to get premature failure of your restoration. So you must always polish that and you, you got to use more than just your you know your red band in fact i found that when I, I did my thesis my study was on red band um, polishing burrs 
versus yellow band versus white band, and uh, and of course you know the coarser the the burr, um, the weaker you're gonna it's gonna be the ceramics gonna be. So mm. so red band is definitely not enough. So you actually have to get hold of these ceramic polishes to um, just to clarify. <clears throat> when you say red band, do you mean red band diamonds? Yes, correct. Yeah, red band diamonds. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Not so red, red band, yeah. then yellow, then white. Correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. but you actually mean no. We have to go past diamonds. We need to use polishes. Yes, you have to use the um, the ceramic polishes. I, I the brand that I use and, and I and I love and I've been using for years now is um, by Eve Eve. That's a German brand. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and uh, I use Diapol is the um, the specific polishes I use. There are specific zirconia and um, and Emacs polishes, but. I just use a generic sort of ceramic polisher, and uh, and it does a beautiful job. You you can get a very nice high shine, almost like it came back from the lab, polished or glazed from the yeah, lab. You know, yeah. just just by these polishers. Um, so I would definitely recommend that to every single um, person out there. I've seen them actually at a fairly high end course. They're, they're definitely the one that's liked by many prosthodontists. Um, mm. I remember learning something, and, and you know, take this where you want, but. It's very important not to just use that fine one and make it look really pretty. Um, you have to go through the grades, otherwise you're not removing those micro cracks and um, defects. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So you know, micro cracks are more than you can see with your eye. You know, we're talking about these um, these effectively microscopic cracks, these subcritical cracks. And um, you know, my research showed that yeah, you, you might not see the flaw, but it's there. And uh, mm. and yeah, that's that's a potential weak point. That's potential crack initiation site. And you're going to run into into um, a risk of premature failure. So you know, the more you you sort of polish and go through the steps, the the less likely you're going to leave any of these behind. And mm. uh, yeah, and you you're going to you you will end up with a with a, a longer lasting restoration for sure. Because think about it, right? Where you do the occlusal adjustment is where the patient's biting on. Yeah. You know, so that's the area of high stress. So if you if you're leaving this sort of rough micro cracked area where the patient's biting. Yeah, of course it's gonna you know you're gonna get crack propagation from there. So yeah, really important to do that. No, it's really that is a really important thing. But I think it's also something it's it's fairly easy to forget. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm glad we're we're sharing that information. With um, as I've said, this is you know focused at students and graduates and people relatively early in their career. What other things as a prosthodontist do you perhaps see early career dentists mistakes are they making? Um. Unfortunately, I still see a lot of um, poorly fitting indirect restorations, uh, you know, with, with overhanging margins, etc. And especially when we're talking about bigger cases like your veneers, your 3D3 mm-hmm. or your, your quadrants all done in a row. Um, mm. and, and, and that's, you know, unfortunately, it, it's, it's easy to – I completely understand because I was in that situation when I was going through my pros program. You know, you spent – literally potentially hours prepping all of these teeth and you're tired you're at the very end mm. and then you're going to take this impression but this potentially is the most important part packing that cord mm. and taking a good accurate impression is potentially the most important part of the whole process you know and 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 i get it you know like you, you, you're running out of time you pack your cord you you take the impression and then there's a drag here or, or an area there that you haven't caught and you're like damn it, I don't have time to pack, you know, six cords or however many cords again and then do another impression and then make the attempts, you know. So, so I, I mean, yeah, and then, of course, if you have these big impressions, you you might not, you might accidentally have missed it, not because, you you know, hmm. you, you wanted to, or but you just couldn't, have, you know, you might not have seen it. 
So you potentially could have mm, missed. For sure. Yeah. And, and so if you don't give your lab a good impression, they're never going to make a restoration that fits. This kind of thing that you might see, is it mostly um, lab-made crowns or is it people using CAD CAM technique that are, that are just accepting inferior impressions? I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, I, I would hazard it's, it's lab-made because, you know, a lot of them are PFMs. Mm. So, yeah, for sure, mm. the low lab-made ones. Uh, I, I haven't come across that I know of a, a bunch mm. of chair-side milled ceramics. Um, yeah, which which had those problems. Do you think the digital way of impress, impressing um, now, allowing us, particularly with the newer ones where we can actually cut out sections and rescan, blah, 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 um, do you think that's going to change that? Do you think, um, you know, perhaps in your own practice, has it made impressioning easier? Yes, 100%. Um, yeah. yeah, for sure. In, in exactly the way you described it, you know, you, you, you do a full arch scan or a quadrant scan or an anterior sextant scan you see one area that's um that you've missed in your scan so easy to just you know pack the cord that one area and delete it and and rescan um so yeah and then it's happened to me too and and you know it's been an absolute lifesaver and a time saver when i when that's happened to me mm-hmm. the one thing i will say though is that uh, that's a bit of a double-edged sword because with scanning there are still potential um places where errors can creep in and it might look mm-hmm. like you've got a good scan but you can still get a bad scan um, you know with overlapping of, of your scan data for example um, and also if you're doing say a full mouth or, or full arch or quadrant there's potential distortion in the um, in the xyz axes so the the, mm-hmm. the individual crowns will fit those teeth individually but if that entire arch or quadrant is distorted, you might have contact area problems. You might have uh, occlusal problems. So, are there ways to limit that error, or is that inherent? Unfortunately, I, I think that's an inherent thing. Um, mm. You know, there's there's uh, the cross arch error. It's always the posteriors. Uh, if you look, there's, this has been studied many many times, and it generally tends to be in the posterior areas when they. Most of the studies, what they do is they'll take a traditional um, PVS impression. And they'll pour it in stone, and they'll scan it in a benchtop scanner. Which benchtop scanners, they because they have a much wider field of view, they take more mm. information in one shot than you can get in a draw scanner. So generally, it's accepted that a benchtop scanner is is going to be quite accurate. And what they'll do is they'll take that scan from the benchtop scanner, and they'll superimpose the intraoral scan. And whenever they superimpose it, you'll always see the errors in terms of the superimposition come in out of those posterior areas. So that tells me yep. that there's going to be some distortion in the um, in, in the x-axis and potentially the z-axis as well. So uh, that's I think unfortunately inherent. It's it's a software thing though. So that's also good mm, too yep. because that tells me. And there is a study that looked at two different versions of the Cirrus software, and mm-hmm. from one version to the next, there was already an immediate improvement in that you know distortion. So that's down to the the, the software company or the the companies to, to improve their software algorithms to uh, to eliminate that error. So we've talked a lot about digital dentistry and, and things where we're you know using software and using um, all these different toys, so to speak, um, to produce amazing results. Where do you learn? Where did you learn a lot of what you know? And and where should you recommend a student or a graduate gets their feet wet in this stuff? So I learned a lot of this um, effectively just by playing with it. Um, Obviously, I, I did a bit of research beforehand. I, I watched lots of lectures and, and webinars. I looked at lots of stuff online. There's lots of groups online. Um, but eventually, I had to, to take the plunge and to actually get a scanner. And I actually started off with a benchtop scanner. 
Um, and the reason for that was because I wanted the, the ExoCAD program that came with it because I knew that that was where a lot of the stuff I wanted to do came from. But the problem is the scanner, even back then, you know, this was maybe three years ago now, it's, it's about an $18,000 uh, investment. And I know that, you know, that not everybody is able to make that sort of investment. I'm a practice owner, so it was it was easy to, to justify. But if you're, you know, an associate dentist or a, a contractor, obviously that's a sort of investment that you, you don't necessarily want to make. Um, it's So it's tough. But I think we, we talked about those free software programs that you can get. And I think... If if I was a young dentist right now, I would definitely look into into digital dentistry um, quite seriously, because I think that's where that's where dentistry is is definitely going. Um, mm-hmm. I, I was 100%. yeah, I was given similar advice. Funny enough, I was given sim- similar advice by one of my my very first bosses in the UK about implants, and he said to me, "Chi, you know, at your age, if I was your age, the one thing that I would be doing now is learning about implants." And this is in 2003 where, or two, 2002 even when, you know, implants was very much in the realm of, you know, the, the specialist and, and not not as ubiquitous as it is now. And so so younger dentists might sort of think, oh, you know, digital is the realm of these, you know, these, these prosthodontists and these super general dentists and super generalists. You know, <laughs> I, I don't think I'll ever need to do that. But I actually think mm. it's going to be a part of everyday dentistry. And certainly, you know, being able to, to talk with your lab even now about certain aspects of it is, is going to help you a lot, you know, in terms of getting out the outcomes because I can guarantee you right now your lab is going to be milling a lot of your restorations if not all of your restorations. Uh, mm. You know, they're going to be doing things digitally whether you know it or not. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so I think I think getting involved with some of those free software programs and perhaps asking your lab nicely to, to scan the stone model for you and give you the STL to play with is a good start. Um, mm-hmm. Intraoral scanners are coming down in price, and there are more and more coming out. Um, you know, Cerex have always been, you know, a hundred k plus investment. But then, you know, when <laughs> yeah. when when uh, Itero came out, and there was half of that because you didn't have to buy the milling machine, that was good. And then now you have like the Medit scanner, which is twenty thousand. You you have there are some new ones coming out as well out of China and uh, and Korea, which by all accounts seem to do, to do quite well. Obviously. Every you know scanner will have its own quirks and 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 in terms of accuracy, maybe that's a problem. Uh, but you know, and speed and and the software. But you know, that's I think that dental practices in general will 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 soon most of them will have one uh, or have a scanner or access to one. And certainly, all, all young dentists will eventually have a scanner. I think. Yeah. I, I- I think it's going the same way, but I actually chose my where I work. I basically looked at the area I wanted to be and then just called the ones that had a CEREC. So, mm, yeah. <laughs> that worked. Yeah. So, so, we're talking about digital dentistry. You've learned a lot of it, um, obviously, by doing um, because particularly as it's, you know, relatively a lot of it's coming out and you're, you're pioneering in it as well. Um, what CPD have you done in your career that was foundational to you that changed your um path and what cpd would you recommend dental students and graduates get into early on Ooh, that, that's a good one and you know what i'm actually going to go right back to the very 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 start um so this is in the year 2000 and i was working in the hospital as i said and so i didn't have a lot of time to to do um cpd courses and i don't, and there just wasn't the the volume of cpd courses to be done as they are today so you guys are all very very lucky 
Um, but mm-hmm. I remember sure. my my dental nurse at the time. Now she she had come from a private practice job, and the um, and the private practitioner she used to work with was very very keen on 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 aesthetic cosmetic dentistry. And so she knew that I could go to the New Zealand Dental Association NZDA library and borrow these videos. And the two videos I, she told me to get were by a fellow by the name of Jeff Knight. And Jeff Knight is an old school. He was like he was like um, the guy for composite restorations, you know, in, in the late nineties and two thousands. And I'm sure some of you have heard of him. But uh, he was quite pioneering, and, and you know he used to have a, a, a monthly segment in, in the ADA um, magazines, and I think he's just done a webinar with uh, Graham Milicic and Ray Bertolotti again, two you know doyens, I guess, of, of, of adhesive composite dentistry. But anyway, he, I got these two videos, and the stuff he was showing me, or he was showing on the video. And I'm talking about VHS tapes, by the way. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what do you mean you went to get them? <laughs> so they were physical tapes. Sorry. Yeah, they had to be sent <laughs> yeah, okay. in. And I had to send them back, you know, 24, uh, 14 days later, I would get a fine. Um, anyway, I... I, I <laughs> I'll YouTube what you mean by that later. Yeah. I, actually, I, I've looked. I don't think you can get them. It's that old school. So there's probably all this, you know, archival footage which hasn't been uploaded. I'm not sure. I, I, I remember asking Jeff because I, 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 this is this is ironic and this was quite quite nice. I think I, I gave a lecture one time and Jeff was sitting in the audience and I gave him mm-hmm. a special shout out. I said, "Hey man, you know, you're the guy that started me on the journey." Because because from that video, awesome. I learned cool. I learned concepts that um, that I just wasn't taught in dental school about yeah. composite. Or, or cosmetic dentistry in general, and I was fascinated by it. And I actually started on these poor, you know, public patients doing a lot of these <laughs> build-ups anteriorly, and and that was yeah. that was where I started, you know, my love of, of cosmetic dentistry anyway, and, and prosthodontics sort of came from that. So these days, you have guys like you know Anthony Mack and Barrett and Johan and um, you know and then Jason Smithson who comes over every now and then you can fly over and do Newton Files course I believe he still runs it every now and then uh, even Tony Rotondo will do a course you have all these guys Michael Manicos you know just to name a few these these guys who I've learned a lot from and, and you can do one of these courses and and I would definitely recommend that because composite the actual composite side aside you know talking about how to layer a composite you learn about the anatomy you learn about the shape of a tooth and that is the foundation, I think, of a lot of, of uh, dentistry in general, you know, dental anatomy. Um, so that's number one. The second one is, I think, uh, an implant type of course, implant restorative course, because implant is, is, is dentistry now. It's no longer in the realm of specialists. It's so common. And, uh, and I don't know how well it's taught in dental school, but, uh, you know, in my day it certainly wasn't. And certainly I, I have recently been involved with teaching um, you know, undergraduate students or, or you know um, dental students and and it's still not taught to the extent that that it, uh, we would like not because we don't want to teach or you know universities don't want to you just can't fit that into the program yeah it's they've got to teach enough already Correct. yeah <laughs> so. and so you know we, there's, they've already cut out so much and i think there's, there's got to be a point where you say okay you know this is certain stuff we can cut out but that's the minimum you know anyway so uh doing doing uh, some implant related courses uh, very very important and then from there, I guess, uh, look, I'm, I'm obviously coming from the perspective of prosthodontics. Um, you know, from there, it's, it's, you can just expand. You can just find what you want, you know, whether you get into implant surgery, that's another thing you could look at doing. 
but also don't forget the basics too, like you know your your oral medicine, um, you know even communication, communicating with patients. That's very important. I've I've done plenty of those in my time. You know, and I remember as a prosthodontist, I I did some communications courses. You know, how to talk to patients and things. And I was already a practitioner for 10 years at that time you know going back and doing that was important yeah it's definitely something communication comes up a lot people have heard me drone on about i think it's like the most important thing by far um but i think i really like what you said about the composite work particularly in aesthetics you're learning both um tooth morphology you're but you're working with the material we work in day in day out like we can easily go do a veneers course but um like pour some veneers course but if we can't do it in composite first maybe that's well, the first step definitely yeah and so um all the all the the stuff I've learned from Jeff Knight and and everybody else that definitely helps me in my veneers and, and my indirect restorations, mm. you know. So I, I sometimes adjust, um, you know, my veneers. Like imagine, like I was adjusting a composite, and then I'd send it back to the lab to finish, you know. So I was going to say you polish them after, right? <laughs> yeah, or you know, sometimes you got to re yeah, or yeah, recenter. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right, so we've got tons out of you tonight, and gee, I really appreciate your time um, coming on the podcast and sharing it. Um, I always ask this last question, and I, I want you to have a good think about this, and and tell us the the one thing if you could teach all graduating dentists one thing, one tip, one technique, or one piece of advice. What is that thing? Maybe think of it. What did you wish you were taught when you were graduating and, and what would you tell them today? Oh, gosh. Mm, non-clinical, it would probably be patience. You know, um, it's, 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 it's such a underrated virtue to have, you know, in, in all mm. aspects of dentistry. Uh, whether it's you are coming out as a new grad and you're wanting to to get into full math rehabs, you know, well, you know, take a step back, take your time. Um, and even down to when you're in the clinic and you're waiting for something to set, like you're packing the retraction cord, <laughs> wait that five minutes because it's much better after five minutes than it is after one when you're applying the bond as well, you know, yeah. you're putting your bonding agent in. Just wait a little bit, you know, let, let, the, let the chemistry work before you go in there and you dry and rinse it off. So I think, I think perhaps patience is, is um, yeah. It's probably think, the one piece of advice I, I will give to everybody. I think, I think that's fantastic and it kind of ties in what you were saying earlier in a way is in comparison is the, thief, is the thief of joy and often we're comparing ourselves to others and want to race to get there. We want to, um, you know, do more things faster and all the rest of it but sometimes we just have to take it one step at a time and, and patience. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for your time tonight on a Sunday night. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's getting pleasure. late now. But... I love talking dentistry as cheesy as it sounds. <laughs> I could go on for another hour and a half if you wanted to. But yeah. I was going to say, well, we're, we, we certainly will one day, I think. But um, I look forward to seeing you at a course in the future, um, probably talking digital dentistry. It's, it's fascinating. I'm going to have all the stuff we talked about in the show notes, all the, the programs and bits and pieces. Thanks, G. Cool. Have a good night. Cheers, mate. CPD is expensive. Travel, time away from work, hotels, it all adds up. Imagine being able to see the content from world-renowned speakers from all over the globe. Learn about restorative, full-mouth work, communication, surgery, and tons more, all from the comfort of your own home. No travel costs, no hotels. That all exists and is getting better every day on the RIPE Academy from Restoring Excellence. For just $29 US per month, you'll get access to some of the best online content and save thousands on the real-life course equivalents. In fact, if you look really closely, you'll actually see me on there. 
I paid thousands for that course, it was awesome and now it's just 29 US dollars a month to see the same stuff. Find out more on the Ripe Dentistry Group or at restoringexcellence.com. Digital dentistry, it's definitely the way of the future and I really appreciate Chi sharing all that wisdom with us, sharing the tips and the, the programs and those little bits and pieces so if you're interested in it, you can get stuck into it early on. And I found it pretty awesome to hear that Chi still has his deck set up at home so when he feels the need, he can go and play, he can DJ, um, let off some steam so to speak. We all need that way of letting go. Thank you to everyone who took the time to do the survey and give their thoughts to us, Dental Head Start and to Prime Practice. Um, it was very, very helpful and I hope the people who won the Prime Vision Conference tickets um, enjoyed it. And of course, congratulations to Monica who won the Prime Speak ticket as well. And usually I would say, as always, we've got our Prime Head Start segment. And unfortunately, this is our last Prime Head Start segment. Of course, Prime Practice and Dental Head Start are still great friends, uh, but this is something that we're going to put on hold for a little while. I hope you've enjoyed the Prime Head Start segment and I really want to express my gratitude to Prime Practice for their support, but also for their courses. I, I genuinely don't partner with people who I don't think are helping dental students and graduates and Prime Practice is, um, I couldn't have wished for anything more in their support of students and graduates, with their competitions, with what they've given away, it's fantastic. Um, we're going to finish this one off with Dr. Philip Palmer and three ways you can improve your dental career. So welcome to the Prime Head Start segment proudly brought to you by Prime Practice. Today we're lucky enough to be joined with the founder of Prime Practice, Dr. Philip Palmer. How are you today, Philip? I'm very well, thanks, David. Good to be here. It's always a pleasure to have you on and it's not your first uh, rodeo here, so um, let's get stuck into it. I want to talk a little bit about the things um, young dentists can do to grow their careers in the long term. Well, it depends which way they want to take their careers. So, But no matter which way they want to take their, their careers, if they want to be successful in dentistry, first of all, I, I, I'm going to take as a given that they're going to keep up to date with clinical uh, yep. studies and that they're going to be fabulous clinicians. Yep. Um, Entry ticket to the game. Exactly. So let's just assume that uh, because their patients will assume, the patients assume that all dentists are the same. The things that make a difference with a dentist is, first of all, their communication skills, hmm. how well they talk to patients. Um, think of it like this. If you're going to from one hotel to another hotel, you going to the reception and going to meet the management or whatever, as far as you're concerned, the bed is the bed. Mm -hmm. So I take that as an equivalent for the clinical skills is the clinical skills. It's how you're treated in the hotel and the look of the hotel, I guess, makes a difference. But it's how you're treated that makes the difference as to whether you want to come back. So that goes along with the communication skills, not only of you, but of also other people in the team. But mm. in particular, the dentist's communication skills are what gets him across the line and getting the work done that he thinks he would have done in that position. So he's got to now explain the work that is necessary to a patient, to the patient, in a way that the patient wants it. Yeah. Many times the patient comes in with no perceived problem and they leave with a solution to no perceived problem that is many thousands of dollars. Yeah. So how do you go from no perceived problem to I accept a large treatment plan? That depends on communication. 
Absolutely. It's such a such a key thing. And I, I know the listeners are probably thinking, David, why are you talking about communication again? But it's crucial and there's no way around that. So exactly. what, what other things are young dentists thinking about to, um, to grow their careers in the long run? So this is something, I guess, slightly out of left field, but I'd probably tell them to do some personal development. So, yeah, and it's hard, yeah. to, hard to define what does personal development mean because we're all have graduated through university. We're all, as dentists, we must be above average or we wouldn't get through dentistry. But some people, you know, are constantly fighting with people and constantly arguing with people. And some people are just so easygoing they wouldn't know what was happening. And some people mm. get what they want, don't take offence easily, are not overly sensitive but sensitive enough. And a lot of that to, is to do with personal development. It's mm. developing your emotional intelligence um, and if you can develop your emotional intelligence, it will give you a huge head start. That's a pun on your business name. It'll <laughs> well give done. you a huge uh, head start on uh, where you're going to take your career. So yeah. emotional intelligence I see as something that, first of all, I've got a particular interest in it. and We've been measuring the emotional intelligence of our clients for the last probably 15 years. Yeah. And it's been a fascinating exercise. And it's amazing to learn about. Philip, I, I, I love that point. I think that's super useful. Do you have any um, tips or resources where people could go to right now to, to maybe start their journey in, in personal development? Um, or books perhaps that you just think there's one book they must read? Well, a lot of them are business books that have a lot of personal development in them. Certainly mm. anything by Stephen Covey. Yeah, um, I think is a great business book, and it also gives you some uh, emotional intelligence insights as well. Uh, Stephen, uh, Simon Sinek, yeah, um, the good to great right? books. Yeah. Um, all of those have some element of it, but just look up emotional intelligence online on Google and see if you can yeah. get yourself tested. I've had myself tested many times over the years. I come up with the same issues every time. I know exactly <laughs> where my strengths are, and I know my. Weak. I never knew my weaknesses till I got tested, and now that I've been tested and I, it's been pointed out what my weakness is, I see it everywhere. Yeah, I see yeah. this problem that keeps recurring from for me, um, and it's just fascinating. So, well, it's, no. it's only something you can only deal with a problem if you can diagnose the problem. Uh, same in dentistry, same in our personal. Yes, it has to be identified. Being coached is a great way of improving your emotional intelligence. So I know at Prime, as I said, we have been testing everybody's emotional intelligence. We do it before and after a program with us, and it's interesting that there is such a significant difference. I mean, you could test your IQ before and after, and nothing will change. It wouldn't, yeah. wouldn't change a fraction. But your emotional intelligence, you can influence it. You can impact it. And, uh, yeah, so it, it is good. That's fantastic. Those tips are so useful and you brought up the point of coaching and we've touched on that before and the benefits of coaching and, and how that can help you identify perhaps your weaknesses that you haven't already seen. Is there any other tips you want to share for, for Dennis and growing their careers in the long term? Yeah, if they can get somehow involved in understanding their management styles and how they can improve their management of people. Management of people is a big issue. I never mm. understood it for a long time in my career that that was going to have an impact. I had trouble when I had just one DA and one person at the front desk. I had trouble. And the trouble probably was more personal trouble with managing myself. But when you learn a bit about management, you can manage a lot of people. 
Um, but there are some principles of management that I recommend to anybody. Again, any of those books that I mentioned before will help you along those paths as well. So I guess the three best ways of improving your career is communication, personal development, and management and leadership. They're fairly aligned and allied, um, those three fields, but I can recommend them strongly. They certainly yeah. had a major impact on my career. That's such fantastic advice. And to be honest, you're preaching to the choir with me um, listening to this because I agree so much with that. But like you said, they're very aligned. They're very similar. And a lot of this is our interpersonal skills um, and things that we can work on specifically on ourselves. So thank you so much, Philip, for sharing that with us on the Prime Head Start segment. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Dental Head Start podcast. I genuinely hope this is helping you become a better dentist. So if you like what you're hearing, make sure you subscribe on your podcast player and I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go to social media and share something that you've appreciated from us with one of your friends. That's how the word gets out. That's how more people gain and benefit from what we're doing. And if you're a dental student or a graduate and you want to get a head start, go to dentalheadstart.com start to find everything we're doing to help dental students become great dentists.